We are now at the halfway point of the letter of the Ephesians. We're at the end of chapter 3 out of the six chapters. Ephesians is a letter of two halves. These first three chapters have been by way of introduction and foundation laying for the teaching that will follow in chapters 4, 5 and 6. Nothing, or not very much, has yet been said about behaviour and no rules have been set. But the teaching about Christ in these chapters is the reason for the teaching about behaviour that will follow in the second half. Our passage today is a prayer and it is also in two halves. The first about what he is seeking for the Ephesians and then an outbreak of praise to God. Each of these halves can be a template or an inspiration for our own prayers whether praying alone or praying together. The passage begins as Ephesians 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 14, with the three words, for this reason. What reason is that? The new Christians at Ephesus who received this letter had, of course, not read the book we know as the Acts of the Apostles, because that was not written until at least a decade later. But instead... They heard first-hand from Paul himself how Paul had tried to exterminate Christians, but that Jesus had appeared to him on the road to Damascus. To everyone's astonishment, Jesus then appointed Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles, such as these people from Ephesus, to whom he is now writing. And it is because Paul has been given that responsibility that he is now praying for them. I wonder, did he feel it was just a duty laid on him to pray for them, which of course it was, or did it also seem to him a reason for great confidence that he will be heard and he will be helped as he tries to discharge that responsibility? What responsibilities in life do we have? Is praying about them just a duty? Or do we have confidence that where God gives us a duty, he will help us with our responsibilities? Now the next thing is the significance of the apparently insignificant remark in verse 15, where he speaks of the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now why bother to mention this and what does it mean anyway? In Britain, for example, until recent decades anyway, it was normal for wives and children <coughs> to be known by the surname of the husband and father. And many other cultures do similar things. Family trees in the Bible usually follow from father to children because that was the way society thought in those days. Of course, alternative, equally valid family trees could have been recorded following from mother to children because even in those days, children had both a father and a mother. So, what follows from this remark? God made mankind to live in relationship with him and with each other and the breaking and repairing of those relationships is one of the biggest storylines in the Bible and in life. 
and God reveals himself as a father, providing and caring perfectly, just as he intended human fathers and mothers to prepare, provide for and care for their children. And that's why this letter has started with the relationship each person can have with God the Father, but will later go on to consider how the quality of that Godward relationship affects other relationships between men and women and parents and children. And the next thing that strikes me, on looking through the first part, verses 19 to 14, is the action words, who is doing or might do what. For example, Paul asks that God may strengthen with power, so that Christ may dwell, so that they or we might have power to grasp and understand and know and be filled. Paul needs God to do the first things first, and then and only then can the Ephesians or us do any of the other things. It all depends on God's activity because Paul, though he was a great apostle, evangelist, teacher, preacher, even a New Testament writer, he can't do this. And neither can we. We need someone to do this for us, and we need someone to pray this prayer for us. And what's he asking for? One might ask, what is he not asking for? He's not asking for wealth for us, nor healing particularly, nor that they may do famous miracles or be brilliant preachers like him. Instead, he asks that God would do an inner work in their lives. Paul can preach to them as he has done and teach them as he is trying to do, but it is God who makes the inner changes. Looking again at verses 16 to 19, we see that he asks for strength in your inner being, that Christ may dwell in your hearts, that they may be rooted in love and understand the magnitude of God's love. Like the roots of a tree, these are the foundation blocks of the Christian life. All these things are about building their relationship with the living God, their Father, with growing in depth and the quality of that relationship. They're not about things that happen in the world of day-to-day -day practical living. They're much more important than that. And Paul's prayer is rooted in his own experience. When he was persecuting Christians, his actions had not been rooted in love from God. It's not for us to judge his relationship with God at that time, but it seems that it may have been based on following a misunderstood rule uh, to the ultimate degree, that he may have been often in doubt as to whether he is qualified. But one day Jesus reached out to him and revolutionised his life by doing the very things that he is now asking God to do for the Ephesians. If Paul is not impossible, then who else is? Because nowadays we think of Paul as a great person in Christian history. But he was a hopeless case to start with, 
At first he had wanted to destroy the early church because he was sure they were wrong about Jesus. And we first read about him that he was helping at the stoning of St Stephen even. He was someone for Christians of that day to be afraid of and to avoid. Yet God did something. Confronting him on the Damascus Road, Acts chapter 9, God forgave him, re-educated him and commissioned him to serve God in truth. The disciples at Damascus were at first reluctant to meet and trust Paul, but God had done something far more than they had asked or even imagined. So, if God can change Paul, ignorant persecutor of the church, into Paul, one of the most influential Christian leaders of all time, what else can he do today that we have not even thought of? Who is too lost to be found? And in the second part of his prayer, he goes on to say, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Throughout the Bible, there are histories of people finding out that God is bigger than they first thought. For example, Moses, who thought that leading the people out of Egypt was impossible. And before him, there were Abraham and Sarah and the promised child born to them in their late old age when they were approaching a hundred. And later there was Jesus and the child who was already dead in Luke chapter 7. And of course the disciples who thought that Jesus who was crucified was permanently dead. These and lots of other events in the Bible encourage us to think big and to ask God for big things. Well, usually, sermons end with a summary of the learning points it included. Today, for example, we might end by saying again that valid Christian living and service is rooted in experiencing and being changed by the vast, unstoppable love of God, and that God can do more than we think. But instead, let's enjoy this passage as a prayer, which is what it is, rather than as a lesson which sermons tend to make of it. So, if you're reading this at home, why not go back to the passage at the top of the sheet uh, and read it aloud, using the words to pray for those with you, or for family who live somewhere else, or some other people that you're concerned about. And when it comes to the last two verses, rejoice, God is able to do more than we ask or even imagine. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, for ever and ever. Amen.